Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, I am back. I know a lot of people have been upset that I haven't been able to do a podcast uh, in almost two weeks. I think the last one I did was a week ago, Friday. But the reason I've been absent, I just haven't been feeling well. I've been coughing a lot and just, you know, haven't been up for doing a podcast. So uh, I'm doing one today, though. I'm still a little bit sick. I figure it's been long enough. So I got to talk a little bit about what's on my mind. And, you know, first of all, there hasn't been that much activity, I guess, in the markets over this time period. The U.S. dollar has generally been weaker. It has been trending down. It hasn't really broken down yet, but it is going lower. In fact, the dollar index, I think, closed today around uh, 97.69 or something like that. So that is lower than it had been. Remember, uh, a few weeks ago, the dollar index was above 99. Uh, So the dollar is trending lower. Interest rates are actually moving higher. Bond price is going down. The yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury now is at 2.26. And I think this is significant because it really shows the problems that are building in the economy because the dollar is weakening and interest rates are rising, right? And that is going to mean higher consumer prices. It's going to mean higher borrowing costs. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve is doing everything it can to artificially Uh, suppress interest rates. In fact, one of the stories that I've read several times over the last couple of weeks is how the Federal Reserve is having to do more repurchase agreements. They're having to increase the size of the amount of treasuries they're buying in the market. Now, I didn't see that in today's uh, balance sheet numbers. The balance sheet was only up about $2 billion over the prior week. But I have a feeling that the number is going to be much, much higher than that when we get it a week from today. You know, once upon a time, people really looked at this stuff, you know, because the money supply also comes out every Thursday. And we had an increase in the money supply again, not quite as big as the increase in the prior week. But once upon a time, I think it was the 1970s, the money supply 
was the number that everybody looked at. I mean, the weekly money supply numbers that came out Thursday, they, they, they've always come out on Thursday, but everybody waited for those numbers. People actually cared about how much money the Fed was creating until I guess they created so much, people stopped caring. And then in the 1980s, the big number was the trade deficit, the merchandise trade deficit, which you know just came out every month. But everybody waited for that number. It was highly anticipated. And if that number missed expectations, you had huge swings in the Forex markets. But it also affected bonds. It affected precious metals. It affected the stock market. In fact, the 1987 stock market crashed. One of the reasons for that crash was the big uh, trade deficit numbers that we had been coming out with at that time, which are tiny compared to the the deficits we got now. But back then, they were considered uh, to be big numbers. And at some point, I guess the trade deficits became so big that people stopped worrying about them because it was like, wait a minute. I mean, we have these huge deficits. We were worried about the deficits. They're now bigger than ever. And so people stopped worrying. And then the the numbers that they started to look at were these jobs numbers, right? That started in the 1990s when everybody started looking at the employment numbers, right? The non-farm payroll numbers. Those numbers were not that big a deal back in the 70s and the 80s, but they became a big deal. And I suppose nobody cared how much money we were printing or how big our trade deficits were as long as we were creating jobs. And of course, you know, eventually nobody even cared if the jobs were real, if the government made them up or if they were low paying or part time. As long as we can keep printing a number uh, that was somewhere around 200,000, everything was good and the stock market could keep going up and nobody cared about the money supply and nobody cared about the trade deficits. Well, everything old is new again. And I have a feeling that both money supply and the trade deficits are going to become big factors again and big numbers uh, as this not QE that the Fed is now doing gets bigger and bigger and bigger as the Fed is trying to keep the air from coming out of this bubble long enough to reelect Donald Trump. And I don't think they're going to succeed. They may succeed in, in, in keeping the air in the bubble. I think it's going to be more difficult to succeed in reelecting Trump. Now, it's not going to be impossible, uh, but I think it's going to be difficult. But that's generally what the Federal Reserve always tries to do. They try to kick the can down the road long enough to reelect whoever's in office. And they're going to do the same thing uh, for whoever succeeds Trump, right? No matter what Democrat wins, right, whatever the Federal Reserve chair is at the time, they're going to try to, you know, to, to keep everything going for another four years. I mean, this is the game that they play. In fact, Trump came out again today with a tweet in which he accused the Federal Reserve of being derelict in their duties because they don't have interest rates low enough. They're not doing enough stimulus. Well, Trump is right about one thing. The Fed is derelict in their duties. But for the opposite reason that he cites, where the Fed has been derelict is in keeping rates too low, been been providing too much of this so-called stimulus to the economy. That's where they've been derelict. They have not been the provider of sound money. They have not provided the fiscal discipline that we want an independent central bank to provide. The whole idea behind the independence of the, the central bank is to prevent the central bank from working with the government to expand the size of government and to expand debt, right? But that's what they've been doing. And that's what Donald Trump wants the Fed to do. 
Donald Trump is running massive deficits because he's cut taxes and increased government spending, and he wants the Federal Reserve to work with him to monetize that debt to try to delay the pain that would normally be associated with that fiscal profligacy. But what you want the Fed to do is not to numb the pain, but make sure that the pain is felt so that the, the voters know that there's pain. And so there's political pressure on the government to act responsibly, to stop borrowing, to cut government spending. But Donald Trump doesn't want that. He just wants to get reelected and he wants to be Santa Claus and make sure everybody gets what they want. And so he wants the Fed to cooperate. And unfortunately, they are going to cooperate, right? Because they are going to continue to be derelict in their duty and they're going to work hand in glove with the government uh, to continue to march us down this road of, of bankruptcy. You know, and speaking about Christmas, we got the... Uh, earnings that came out of Amazon after the close. And we know we had some stocks that were down today with bad earnings. Uh, you had Ford that would drop, I think, 6% or so. 3M had a bad day uh, with its earnings. Although Tesla, uh, one of the stocks delivering uh, better numbers, that stock was up quite a bit. Although Twitter, Twitter was down over 20% on its earnings. So we had some pretty big moves today. But after the bell, we got Amazon, right? And Amazon is the big enchilada when it comes to retail sales, right? Consumer spending. And there, their uh, numbers missed. But more important, I think their revenues might have beat, but their earnings actually fell year over year. Profit declined for Amazon. But I think what's spooking the markets was their outlook for uh, the holiday season, which was diminished uh, from what uh, analysts had been expected. So maybe what um, Amazon is sensing that you know, underemployed, overly indebted Americans are going to have a harder time going deeper into debt to buy more stuff that they can't afford uh, this Christmas season. So again, in order to keep all this going, right, to keep the air in the bubble, the Fed is going to be stepping up uh, these purchases. And I think more and more uh, bonds, treasuries are going to be presented to the Fed as the Fed is out there buying. And you know, every time I read these articles too about the Fed having to increase the size of its asset purchases, right? Never calling it quantitative easing. But every time I read about it, it's always prefaced with the words temporary, right? They're having to increase the size of this temporary measure. Well, how do they know that it's temporary? It doesn't look temporary to me. I mean, the fact that they have to keep increasing the amounts that they're purchasing, doesn't that you know, show that there's some kind of a problem. And, you know, the more government debt they buy now, the more they have to buy in the future. And, of course, they can't turn around and reverse it because they already tried that, right? They tried to do quantitative tightening. They did it for a while. And then when the economy buckled, they not only stopped tightening, but they went back to quantitative easing, except they were too embarrassed to admit that that's what they were doing. And so they're saying, oh, we're just temporarily doing what we were doing before, except we're actually doing it even bigger. And we're just not going to call it what we used to call it because we want to, you know, we, we, we want to deny that we're doing it. But again, the fact that they have to do quantitative easing again not only proves that it didn't work, because if it worked, they wouldn't have to do it again because it would have worked, but it also proves that the Fed was wrong in what they were telling the market for years. The Fed was assuring the market that it was going to shrink its balance sheet. And it was based on that belief that we had a big rally in the dollar, that we had a sell-off in gold, 
and that is just now starting to reverse as traders have to price all this out. They have to realize that the Fed was either lying or just wrong for all the years it was claiming it was going to do what was actually impossible to do and what the market should now know was impossible because they've given it up, right? They're about to cut rates again. The Fed's going to cut interest rates, I think, for a third time next week. In fact, that's also what Trump's tweet was about. He was basically saying, you better cut rates or you're going to be derelict in your duty. And I'm sure they're going to cut rates because they are derelict in their duty. And they're going to go back to quantitative easing, right? Not only are they not shrinking the balance sheet like they claimed they would, the balance sheet is now rising at a faster pace than it was when they were doing quantitative easing. Now, against the backdrop of a weakening U.S. dollar, and a uh, rising long-term interest rate environment, we did see a little bit of a rally in gold, and gold has now reclaimed uh, the 1500 handle. We closed today at about 1502, 1503. I think the gold correction is over, and I don't think it's gonna take that long for the price of gold to make new highs above the 1550 level, which was, I think, the high that we set uh, so far uh, this year, I think we're going to take it out. In fact, I think we're going to close the year uh, well north of 1550. I don't think we're going to take out the high from 2011 of 1900. I don't think we're going to take that high out until next year, but I'm pretty confident that we're going to do that. Now, as gold is shining, uh, Bitcoin is losing its uh, phony luster. In fact, uh, I think yesterday finally we had a breakdown in, in the Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin had already broken down, right? It was trading around 10,000 uh, a coin around that area for a while. And I was pointing out that it looked very weak technically, that it was forming a, a descending uh, triangle and that it was most likely going to be resolved to the downside. And then we got a sharp drop where Bitcoin lost about 20%, you know, you know pretty much uh, instantaneously. And then it began trading around 8,000. Uh, the low end of the range, maybe 7,800. The high end, about 8,300. Uh, and it was forming a flag, a bear flag. Because you have a flagpole going down, and then you have this small period of consolidation following a big move that kind of looks like a flag, right? Uh, you, sometimes you have a pennant or you can have a flag. This pattern kind of looked like a flag. And so it was projecting another downward move because flag patterns are continuation patterns and they generally suggest uh, that you continue the move that preceded it, which in this case is, is a move down. And we finally got that break yesterday when Bitcoin fell all the way down to about 7,300, I think was about the spike low. It recovered a bit and has been trading just around the 7,500 area. I think 7,450 to 7,500 is kind of where I've been seeing it for most of today. It's about 7,450 uh, as I'm recording this. I did see it peak above 7,500 earlier today, but it couldn't really get its head much above 7,500. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, it looks like we've now started the next move lower from that bear flag. And the projection is for a move down to about 6,000, which is equal to the move that preceded it uh, from, from 10,000 to 8,000. But I think even more ominous for the Bitcoin bulls that are out there is if you look at that uh, chart, the long-term chart of Bitcoin, we actually just finished forming the right shoulder 
of a long-term head and shoulders top. I mean, you can see this thing if you look at it on a chart. And the head is way up about 14,000, right? And the neckline was around 7,500, 76, 7,700, somewhere in there. It's hard to pinpoint it exactly. But it looks like we've basically cracked through the neckline. Uh, and you can see that head and shoulders there. And if you draw a projection, the way a head and shoulders pattern works, the, the decline once you break the neckline is equal to the to the peak of the head to the neckline. Well, that basically projects a move down to between one to two thousand for Bitcoin. So there is nothing but air, you know, beneath the Bitcoin chart. You know, I was talking to a good friend of mine out here in uh, in Puerto Rico who's a big a big uh, Bitcoin guy has lots and lots of money in Bitcoin, way too much. Uh, but you know, I was trying to you know talk to these charts about or show them these charts. Just, you know, maybe you should lighten up a little bit because you've got, he's so heavy in it. And he's like, look, these charts are meaningless. I don't care about charts. The charts don't reflect the fundamentals. And I said, of course, they don't reflect the fundamentals. That's the whole point of technical analysis. You have fundamental analysis and you have technical analysis. Although technicians will tell you that the fundamentals, whatever they are, end up being reflected in the charts. But the whole point of technical analysis is that you don't look at the fundamentals. You look at the charts. And, you know, when it comes to an asset like Bitcoin, and I put, you know, asset in quotes, you got nothing, you got no fundamentals. There is nothing fundamental about it. It's all technical as far as I'm concerned. So the best indicator that you have, if you're going to trade Bitcoin, the only thing you should be looking at is the charts. That's it. That's all you got. And right now the charts are looking really, really bad uh, for Bitcoin. And, you know, by the way, the sell-off in Bitcoin yesterday coincided with the testimony of, of Mark Zuckerberg in Congress. In fact, the entire decline basically happened before the testimony started, the hearing commenced. But it was the morning of the hearing that you had this sharp drop in Bitcoin. Of course, not just Bitcoin, all the other altcoins. You know, now there's more than 3,000 of them. I think the last I looked on coin market cap, there were like 3,030 uh, cryptocurrencies. So the inflation of cryptocurrencies continues. Uh, but it's kind of ironic that as cryptocurrencies were in the spotlight, uh, you, you know, they, the moment uh, Bitcoin didn't take that moment in the spotlight to shine, it got clobbered. And of course, you know, if you look at Google Trends too, the interest in Bitcoin continues to diminish. Even though they keep talking about the hash rate hitting an all-time high, there's there's not a lot of new interest. Which is the most important thing when you got a basically a Ponzi scheme like Bitcoin is you need new buyers, you need new people entering the market, and if the supply of new people is run dry, well then you know the the, the fools that are in there now are the ones that are in are going to be the bag holders. But you know what I really want to talk about is the hearing, the Zuckerberg hearing. I watched pretty much the whole thing, and it really was a disgusting display, you know. And I I know I feel for Zuckerberg. But I really wish, you know, he could come out and just put these congressmen and women in their place and call them out. Because all these questions are complete nonsense. They're ridiculous. He shouldn't even have to answer these ridiculous questions. Like he gets questions, especially when you get the African-American congressman. I mean, whenever someone is an African-American, the only question they can ask is about race. I mean, isn't there anything else on their mind? Is that all they can think about? But it's completely irrelevant. Like, I forget this one congressman's name, but he he's talking to Zuckerberg, and he's asking about the Libra Foundation, right, which is all these independent companies 
that have you know joined Libra, right? Libra is the currency uh, that uh, the cryptocurrency that that they want to launch, and so it's this Libra Society or Foundation. You got all these companies that were going to be a part of it. You know, a lot of the companies have dropped out of the foundation. They they had initially committed, and now they said they don't want to do it. And you know the the congressmen were trying to make a big deal out of like, oh, you know, people are jumping ship. Like this is a sign that it's a bad deal. The reason these companies are dropping out is because government is putting pressure on them to drop out by threatening regulation and audits, and people are too scared, right? The government doesn't want Facebook uh, to have Libra. That's the problem. But so this guy uh, comes out there and he asks Zuckerberg about the foundation, Libra Foundation. And he says, you know, how many of these companies that are in the foundation, how many of them are headed by African-Americans? Who cares? What difference does it make? Now, Zuckerberg basically says, look, you know, I don't know. I didn't bother to count like the heads of all these companies and I don't, you know, remember which ones happen to be black. I mean, what difference does it make, right? This is, you know, we're trying to have hearings about Libra who cares about the, the race of the CEOs of some of these companies that are part of the society? But probably the dumbest question was not just about the race. He asked Zuckerberg, how many of these companies are headed by members of the LBGTQ uh, uh, community? Right? I, I hope I didn't leave out a letter. I don't want to offend anybody by leaving out a letter or getting a letter wrong. I don't know. There's so many letters there. But, I mean, what a ridiculous question. How's he supposed to know? I mean, first of all, I mean, not every member of that, you know, community, you know, wears a membership badge on their lapel, right? There are some people that are gay that don't, like, come out and say that they're gay, right? I mean, there's probably some of them that are still in the closet, or maybe they're not really in the closet, but they don't want to make a big deal about their sexuality. So Zuckerberg is supposed to know which uh, uh, CEO is gay and which maybe which one is you know straight or who, who cares but what difference does that make you know and, and he had a number of questions about how many minorities facebook employs right some other uh congresswoman you know how many african americans do you employ right how many lbgq members do you employ who cares i mean why should he even have to keep track what difference does it make he's not running a social experiment he's running a private business doesn't matter to him. Look, when you are running a private business, the only thing that you should be concerned about is hiring the best people for the job. That's it. You owe that to your shareholders. You owe that to your customers. Hire the best people for the job. It doesn't matter what their race is. It doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is. None of that matters. But that's the only thing that matters to these idiots that are asking these questions. Why does it Zuckerberg just say, who cares? Don't ask me these stupid questions. You, you, I, I'm a CEO of a major company, right? I'm an important person. I'm here to answer your questions. Ask me something relevant. Ask me something significant. Why are you wasting my time with a bunch of nonsense, right? But no, this is, they're just talking to their voters, right? Oh, we're here, right? I'm here to make sure that Facebook hires more African-Americans, right? Or hires more homosexuals. Why? I mean, what are the, how, who do they owe that to? Where, where, where did they get that obligation, right? Just because they're a company. They, none of this had anything to do with why they were there, right? Supposedly, they're there to, to, to find out is, is the introduction of Libra, right? A, a 
asset-backed cryptocurrency, is there something that needs to be regulated? Is there something here that is going to put the U.S. economy at risk? Which, of course, it's not. You know, you had a lot of these congressmen were, were asking Zuckerberg about, you know, well, how do you know the public is even going to trust you or nobody trusts Facebook? And, you know, what makes you think that you can come out with a currency that anybody's going to want to use? Or how is anyone going to trust you? Or how are they going to trust you with keeping information private? And how are they going to trust you with keeping stuff safe? You know what? That's up to the public. That's up to Facebook. The Congress has nothing to do with it. You know, if nobody trusts Facebook, then nobody is going to use Libra. Or if they don't trust the other companies, and then Facebook will lose on its investment. Look, it's going to cost a lot of money for Facebook to roll this thing out. I'm sure they wouldn't roll it out if they didn't think the public was going to trust them and the public was going to want it. You know, there's a lot less trust, right? I, 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 I distrust Congress a lot more than I distrust Facebook. I mean, come on. I mean, you had one of the uh, maybe it was Maxine Waters, I think, that was saying, uh, you know, Facebook, you know, you have such a bad record. I mean, you're just lying and you're you, you know, you're not telling the truth. And so why should anybody trust you? I mean, talk about uh, the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, nobody has a worse record of lying and not telling the truth than Maxine Waters. I mean, everything out of her mouth is either a lie or not true. Right. But, you know, she's making a big deal about Facebook. Look, Facebook is subject to the free market, right? Facebook is not going to succeed unless the public trusts it, right? Unless advertisers want to use the platform and they're not going to want to use the platform if nobody is on it, if people aren't using it. So uh, Facebook is subject to public scrutiny. Uh, these congressmen just do whatever they want and act as if uh, Zuckerberg is the bad guy just because he made a lot of money, right? Just because he happened to create a product and became a billionaire, right? I mean, it's all its all this envy. It's all this jealousy. It's nauseating is what it is. And these guys think they're better than Zuckerberg, right? I mean, they haven't got a damn thing to do anything, right? All, all they've done is enrich themselves at the expense of the country. Zuckerberg has enriched himself by enriching the country. He has improved people's lives. If people didn't feel their lives were better by using Facebook, they wouldn't do it, right? And if advertising wasn't more efficient on Facebook, then they wouldn't advertise. You know, one of the crazy things, too, that one of these congressmen was jumping all over Zuckerberg was the violation of um, civil rights, right? And basically what he was saying was that because Facebook allows advertisers to target their ads to particular demographics, right? You can target uh, age groups, uh, um, uh, gender, uh, maybe income brackets. Uh, you know, you can try to figure out which people are more likely to want my product, and then I'm going to pay to advertise just to those people. I don't want to waste my ads on a potential you know, person who is not going to be interested or isn't going to be qualified or whatever. And so they're upset at Facebook because they allow companies to target ads in such a way that maybe those ads wouldn't be shown to African-Americans who are living in poor communities. Well, so what? I mean, so, I mean, I mean, so you, you have to make sure that people, African-Americans, get more ads 
I mean, most people who are on the internet don't like ads. I mean, that's the, you know, that, that is the cost that we have to bear. We use the internet for free, but then we get bombarded with ads, right? And so what these congressmen are upset is that some African-Americans aren't getting enough ads, right? They're, they're, they're not getting shown certain ads uh, because they're, they're not in the right demographic or they don't live in, in, in an area. Uh, and this particular, I guess, has to do with housing or mortgages. And, and so they're saying, hey, we need to make sure that you show more ads. Right? It reminds me of the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve says that the consumers have a problem in that prices are rising too slowly, right? So we need prices to rise faster. Now you have Congress worried that certain people aren't being advertised to enough. They need more ads, right? They have to have their online experience interrupted more frequently by ads. And if they're not interrupting them with more ads, then they're discriminating. Look, if an African-American wants to... Uh, take out a mortgage or rent an apartment, and they actively search, they're going to find all the listings that are there, right? Even if it, just because you're not getting advertised a rental unit doesn't mean you can't find it if you're interested in searching. So this is all a bunch of nonsense. Nobody has a right to be shown an advertisement. Nobody has a responsibility to make sure that the people who see their ads are of a certain ethnic group or a, a certain, uh, they live in a certain area. It doesn't matter. If you're an advertiser and you want to advertise to a certain community, then you can advertise to that community. Look, you know, what if I only wanted to advertise uh, to African-Americans? What if I want to advertise a hair care product that I, I, African-Americans are going to use? Or what if I just want to advertise something to gay Americans, to homosexuals? You know, there's obviously there's going to be something that, you know, they might want that straight people might not. Why can I do that? Can I try to target the market that I think is likely to buy my product, right? That, that's the whole idea behind marketing. I mean, he was upset. He goes, Facebook, are you discriminating? Of course we discriminate. Advertisement is all about discrimination, right? We, you want to narrow down your target. You want to discriminate against the people who you don't think are going to buy your product. Why waste your money? Why waste their time? I want to be focused when I advertise. It's all about discrimination. There is nothing wrong with discriminating. These guys want to turn it into like some kind of evil thing that needs to be stamped out. What needs to be stamped out is these congressional hearings. You know, I don't want to call them a, a, you know, a, a lynching, right? Because if you use that term, oh, no. I mean, maybe we could say witch hunt because I guess there's not as many witches out there that could be offended by that. But that's really what's what's going on there. But, you know, then you had this one congressman who was worried and he brought up Bitcoin because I don't know what Bitcoin has to do with Libra because they're two separate things. But he was worried about Bitcoin uh, replacing the U.S. dollar. You know, oh, this is a big threat to the U.S. dollar system. Uh, you know, that's the last thing he needs to worry about. There's no chance that Bitcoin is going to replace the U.S. dollar. But there is a chance that Libra, right, could actually represent a threat to the U.S. government's ability to keep printing money and running big deficits, in which case it's a good thing. I mean, here's what they should have been focusing on, right? They should have focused on Libra itself. And would Libra represent a threat to the financial system? Because let's say a lot of people trust Facebook and trust Libra and the Libra Association, and they decide to save a lot in Libra and transact in Libra. So that there's, you know, billions and billions or hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, you know, on deposit. Uh, and there's all these Libra coins that have been issued digitally backed up by all this money. Is that a threat? I don't think it's a threat at all. Because first of all, what is Libra 
saying that it's going to do, right? Or what is Facebook saying? They're going to take the money that they get, and they're going to take in dollars and euros and yen and pounds, right? Because they're going to be selling Libra all over the world, and they're going to take in all this currency. And what are they going to do with it? They have a basket of currencies that they're going to keep, right? The major currencies. The largest one is going to be the dollar, right? At least to start. And they're going to just buy government bonds. So they're going to buy treasuries. They're going to buy German government bonds. They're going to buy Japanese government bonds, short-term bonds. They're going to have the highest quality portfolio as far as credit quality, right? As far as S&P and Moody's are going to rate this. It's all going to be AAA stuff, right? And so they're going to be issuing tokens that are backed by this portfolio of AAA credit. Basically, Libra will be less of a threat to the U.S. financial system than any one of these FDIC-insured banks because all these banks are making crazy loans, right, that the, the government has guaranteed, right? That Libra is going to be 100% reserved, at least to begin with. Now, I'm sure at some point down the line, if they're sitting on trillions of dollars of deposits and they're just getting low yields in government debt, they might think about, hey, maybe we should buy some corporate debt. Maybe we should make some loans. Maybe we should make some mortgages. Maybe they should operate more like a bank. That may happen down the line. And then if the government wants to talk about more regulation, I guess they could do that. I mean, I, personally, I would rather have the markets regulating the banks, not the governments. They'd be a lot sounder. But if the government decides that they need to regulate them more because they want to make loans, but as long as Libra is keeping all the cash in government debt and not really making any loans other than loans to the government, you know, that is a much safer deposit. Uh, a, a deposit at Libra will represent much less of a threat or a risk uh, to the U.S. system or to the taxpayer than a deposit at Bank of America or Wells Fargo right, where they own a bunch of crap mortgages, right, they could fail, right? So the, the idea that this is something that we, they need to worry about is just, is just not true. Now, the only aspect that they might worry about is if the composition of the reserves change, right? Let's say Facebook, and this came up at the hearing, what if Facebook decides to reduce the component of the U.S. dollar and increase the RMB or some other currency, right? That could... Uh, diminish the role of the dollar, which is true. But I actually like that because the, by by debasing the dollar and printing a lot of money, that doesn't help the U.S. economy. That just helps the U.S. government get bigger at the expense of the economy. I like the idea if you have companies like Facebook issuing a cryptocurrency backed by you know, sovereign debt and they have a portfolio of reserves, let's say all of a sudden one of their key countries is running bigger deficits and printing more money. They're going to say, wait a minute, this country is acting more recklessly. They're going to debase their currency. They're going to have more inflation. Let's reduce their allocation in our reserve and let's increase the allocation of a currency where the government has balanced the budget or is not printing as much money. Because after all, the, the goal of the Libra Foundation would be to preserve the purchasing power of the Libra. And they would do that by adjusting the reserve components. And now if you have all these countries competing for their slot of these reserves, that puts pressure on these governments and central banks 
to act more fiscally responsibly, which is good. You see, what the U.S. Congress wants is no pressure from anybody so they can keep on acting recklessly and irresponsibly. And Libra threatens that. But anything that is a threat to reckless government spending is good for the U.S. economy. It's good for Americans. It's just as bad for the politicians, right, that want to continue uh, leading us down this primrose path. Now, of course, ultimately, what Libra would end up doing is introducing gold as a component of its reserve. And in fact, I think other uh, companies might come out with gold-backed cryptocurrencies as well, which would be much better at preserving purchasing power than what is now contemplated by the Libra. And of course, gold is international, right? Everybody knows the price of gold in their local currency. Now, of course, um, some of these congressmen were saying, hey, why doesn't Facebook just denominate the Libra in only dollars, right? Have it 100% backed by dollars, which they could do. But what about Europeans? What about uh, Japanese? I mean, why would why do they want to deal in the dollar? So in theory, Facebook can have uh, various currencies, right? You could buy a um, Libra denominated in dollars, or you, or you can buy a Libra backed by yen. You could buy a Libra backed by euros. That would be an interesting development. They might have Libras in various currencies, but nothing would stop Americans from choosing the euro-backed Libra or the yen-backed Libra if they felt that those currencies offered a better uh, uh, pres preservation of purchasing power, which would benefit Americans. You see, it's very difficult. If you're an American right now and you're worried about the dollar, you know, it's kind of hard for you to just move to euros or move to yen. But if you're using cryptocurrencies provided by Facebook and Facebook gives you a yen Libra, a dollar Libra, a Swiss franc Libra, a euro Libra, right? If you can have Libra in whatever currency and then you can still spend those Libra at U.S. merchants, right? Because I think if a U.S. merchant is accepting Libra, they could just as easily accept euro Libra as dollar Libra. They just make the conversions just like, you know, tourists coming in. Uh, and so that would also put pressure on governments to act more responsibly because it makes it easier for their citizens to opt out of their currency and opt into a sounder currency to preserve their purchasing power. So that's really where all of this animosity is coming from. Government doesn't want any threat to its monopoly to be able to issue fiat currency at will, right, and debase it at will. And even though Libra is still going to be backed by the dollar, it still represents a potential threat to what the government is doing. But it's not a threat to the country. It, it would be a positive for the country. It's the government that's a threat to the country. Zuckerberg is actually trying to do something that would help the country, right? And the, the, these bureaucrats are trying to stand in his way. But people should not confuse, you know, my support of, a Libra uh, with Bitcoin because Bitcoin and, and Libra have nothing to do with one another other than the fact that they're crypto because Bitcoin is crypto fiat. Bitcoin is backed by nothing. Libra is going to be backed by something, right? It's going to be backed by government bonds of Germany, Japan, uh, you know, uh, Europe, whatever, but it's going to be backed. Right? It would be better if it was backed by gold or backed by silver, but okay, at least it's backed by something as opposed to being backed by nothing. A couple other things I wanted to talk about. I, I read a, a couple of articles. Uh, one of them had to do with the medium income 
And I didn't even realize that it had fallen this low. And the number was actually below $33,000. Uh, it wasn't that much below, but let's just call it $33,000 uh, because it's an easy round number. But the median means that's the income where half the people earn above it and half the people earn below. So think about that. Half of Americans who have jobs, right, because this doesn't count the Americans that don't have jobs, half of Americans who are working earn less than $33,000 a year. I mean, that is a staggering statistic. I mean, do you realize that if you do the math, that's about $15 an hour? Half the country is earning less than $15 an hour, and these morons want to make the national minimum wage $15 an hour? Can you imagine how many people would be out of work in this country if the minimum wage was $15 an hour? And right now you have half the country earning less than $15 an hour. I mean, that would be a complete disaster. Right? It's not like all these people are just going to get raises. I mean, some of them will, but most of them are going to get pink slips. But apart from that, I mean, think about how low that number is. $33,000. That's it. And, you know, when you put it in perspective, and I think I've done this analogy before, but, I, you know, it, it's a good one, so I'll keep doing it. But if you divide it by $1,500 an ounce for gold, that means that somebody today is earning, if you're getting $33,000 a year, you're only earning 22 ounces of gold per year. Now, of course, some people are earning less, right? Some pe people don't earn. They don't earn 33000 because it's 33000 or less. So even if you earn 33000 uh, you're earning 22 ounces of gold, right? Now, if 50% of the population is earning less than $33,000 a year, I bet a good chunk of those people have college degrees, right? Can you imagine that? You got a college degree and you're not even earning $33,000 a year? Plus, you probably have a lot more than $33,000 of college debt, right? But what does that number really mean? Well, if you go back 100 years, right, Henry Ford was famous because he paid his workers $5 a day. And this wasn't his executives. These were the line production workers, right? The entry-level job, the guys that were on the production line assembling stuff, right? These guys that, that, that put a part on the, on, the, on the cars that roll by the assembly line, right? So these guys were getting paid $5 a day. Well, gold was $20 an ounce. If you do the math and multiply it out for the whole year, the Ford factory line worker was basically, he was getting paid 65 ounces of gold a year. 65 ounces. That's three times the medium income today in the United States. And these are blue-collar workers. These are probably the lowest-paid guys that were working at Ford. I mean, could you imagine what, you know, the executives were making if the guys on the line were getting 65 ounces of gold? And remember, that was tax-free. See, if you're getting 22 ounces of gold today, you're not keeping 22 ounces of gold. You're having to share that with the government. I mean, you got to pay Social Security tax, unemployment tax. You might have some income tax, right? Especially if you're, you're married and your wife is earning that money. That pushes you into a higher bracket. But back then, there was no taxes, right? In fact, speaking about guys who have their wives that work, if you want to know why so many married women are working today, that's your answer. 
right? Why, 100 years ago, did married women not have to work? Well, because if their husband had a job, any job, even if he was just working on an assembly line, he made more than three times the medium income today. Well, that was enough money to, to support his wife. Right? And again, if the, the, the factory worker could earn that much money, what about higher educated workers? How much they were able to earn? You know, most of those guys that were working on the factory, not only did they not graduate high school, a lot of them didn't even go. So you're talking about people that just went to grade school or middle school earning much more than people who have college degrees today. And, of course, you know, the professionals earned a lot more than that. I mean, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast are old enough to have watched the Brady Bunch, but they still have the show in syndication. And I think I've talked about them before because I grew up with the Brady Bunch. And this was from the 1970s. And in the Brady Bunch, you got a guy, Mike Brady, who's married to Carol Brady, and they both had uh, children from a prior marriage. So the guy's got three boys, uh, the lady's got three girls, and they come together and they make the Brady Bunch, right? But Mike is the only one that has a job. Carol doesn't work. I mean, she spends time doing charity stuff, but she doesn't have a job. Mike, Mike, Mike's the only breadwinner. And he's, uh, he's an architect. And he's not a partner. He doesn't own the firm. He's just an employee as an architect. And they live in Southern California. Now, I looked up on the Internet earlier today just for kicks how much money architects make today. And basically, the median income for an architect was $80,000 a year. All right? Some make more, some make less, but $80,000 a year is what an architect makes. Now, there is no way an architect could support a family the way Mike Brady did. I mean, first of all, they had six kids and they had a full-time housekeeper, Alice, who lived in, right? Could you, on $80,000 today, could you afford to support your wife, six kids, and a full-time live-in housekeeper? And they had two cars. Mike drove a, a convertible. They also had a station wagon. They took vacations, right? I mean, I, don't, I doubt they had any credit card debt back then. They, you know, there was no student loans. They probably didn't even have car loans. They probably paid cash for those cars. I mean, sure. I mean, you had six kids that were sharing one bathroom. I mean, that probably wouldn't happen today, but then who the hell would have six kids, right? Maybe they'd have one or two kids sharing that bathroom because that's all they could afford because people can't live that lifestyle now. The reason that people can't live like the Brady's or they can't live like people a hundred years ago is because a hundred years ago, when you had a job, you weren't supporting a bunch of people that weren't working. You didn't have to pay taxes. And because there was such a small government, right, because you didn't have all this regulation, you didn't have all these taxes, workers were more productive. And because workers were more productive, they could be paid more. See, that is the secret to higher real wages, is higher productivity. Government can't do that. See, when government promises to give people more wages, higher incomes, they actually end up delivering lower incomes because all the laws and rules and regulations and taxes that they enact in the name of helping workers actually reduces their productivity. And so in the end, they end up earning less. And they earn less because of government. And as people get poorer and poorer, now you get this bigger divide between the rich and the poor, and the government claims that, oh, we need to fix this problem, right? Just like they're doing now with the student loans, right? Oh, all these students have all this debt. The government needs to solve that problem without any admission that the government created that problem, that without the government, nobody would have any student debt because no banks would have been dumb enough to lend these kids the money.
And so the colleges would have been forced to cut prices and, and, you know, and, and deliver an affordable product. But because the government screwed up the free market, they were able to jack the prices up, and now the kids have all this debt. And so now the government is looking for a solution, but nobody ever mentions that the solution is less government. They always want more government. Look, I was reading another tweet today talking about the minimum wage from Elizabeth Warren, and she's out there tweeting about how she wants to make sure that the minimum wage law applies to disabled workers, that she thinks this is terrible that you have all these disabled workers who are being paid less than the minimum wage, right? Now, of course, Elizabeth Warren isn't hiring any disabled workers herself, right? So let's see her go out and hire some and pay them the minimum wage, right? She thinks it's so easy. But she's upset that there are other businesses that have hired um, disabled workers and they're paying them less than the minimum wage. Now, first of all, they're allowed to pay them less than the minimum wage. I mean, this is one of the things I pointed this out on The Daily Show. And this is one of the things that they you know, distorted to try to make me look bad. Because when I was doing my Daily Show interview and I was explaining to The Daily Show, you know, why there was an exemption for disabled workers. Right. And the reason was that even the congressman knew that if somebody was disabled, they were never going to be able to get a job. If they were, if employers were forced to pay the minimum wage, because they just wouldn't be hired, and so in order to enable the disabled to have any employment opportunity, which wasn't even so much for the money. I mean, sure they can use the extra money, but you know a lot of it had to do with just the the on the job experience, the the self esteem that comes along with working. I mean, I even mentioned on the Daily Show that my wife. Uh, had an aunt who recently passed away, but she was disabled and she was working uh, for much less than minimum wage, but she still lived with her, with her, with her mom, even though she was 50, 60 years old, she was still living with her mother because she obviously wasn't productive enough to go out on her own. Uh, but you know, the, she really looked forward to her job. I mean, she got a lot of personal satisfaction from going to work, from feeling that she was productive. She had a lot of friends at work. Uh, that was something that she really looked forward to. It was the, you know, the best part of her life was her job. And she wouldn't have had that job if her employer had to pay her the minimum wage. So I was explaining this on that Daily Show interview. And in fact, the way employers are able to pay a disabled person less than the minimum wage they actually have to give them a test, right? I mean, you can't just pay them. You have to give them a test to measure their productivity. So let's say, I don't know, let's say I'm hiring people to put um, papers in a file, right? That's their job. You're just taking these papers and you're putting them in these files and then you're filing the file, right? Whatever, let's say that's the job. And let's say a person who is not mentally disabled, a, a, of normal in aptitude, intelligence, let's say that person can do 30 files an hour, right? If that's what uh, a, a normal, right, intelligent person would do, right, 30 an hour. So let's say I, I have a, a disabled person and they can do 15 an hour, right? That's how many, I time them, right? They can do 15. Well, I have to pay them half of the minimum wage because they're half as productive as what a non-disabled person would be. Right now, let's say there's another person and they can only do uh, they can only do 10 an hour. Right. Well, I can pay them a third of the minimum wage, right, because it takes them three hours to do what a non-disabled person could do in one hour. Right now, let's say there was no minimum wage. 
well, how am I going to hire a guy that it takes him three hours to do something that a non-disabled person could do in one hour? I mean, if I have to pay the guy the same wage, it would cost me three times as much to hire the disabled worker as the worker who wasn't disabled. So the, the disabled worker wouldn't have a chance. He could never get a job. So the only way to let him get a job is to allow the minimum wage to come down so he can compete fairly, right? So it costs me the same to hire somebody. If it's going to take him three times as long to do it, I got to pay him one third per hour to get the same productivity. And so by doing that, they enabled employers to give mentally disabled people jobs that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Now, what does Elizabeth Warren want to do? Elizabeth Warren is saying this is terrible that all these employers are hiring these people for $3 an hour, $2 an hour, $1 an hour. Let's end this and let's, let's, let's put the minimum wage, right? Now, she thinks, well, they're just going to rate, give all these uh, mentally disabled workers big fat raises. No, they're not. They're going to give them pink slips. I mean, they're not going to be charities. I mean, it probably already is uh, something, you know, to, to offer the, the, the mentally disabled jobs. I'm sure there is even a cost there, even if they're allowed to pay them less. I'm sure that the, the, there is still some net loss to the employer. They would probably rather hire, uh, uh, you know, mentally, you know, able people. Uh, but they probably feel that they're, they're helping out uh, uh, the mentally disabled. And even if it's easier for them to hire uh, fully able, mentally able people and pay them more, they, you know, they're, they're able to, to do this. But if you make it much too expensive, and it's a lot of small businesses too that hire uh, the disabled workers, if you really increase the cost of doing that good deed, they're not going to do it, right? I mean, so that, that's going to be the end of it. So really what Elizabeth Warren wants to do, she just doesn't want to come out and say it. She just wants to pass a law making it illegal to employ disabled workers, making it illegal for disabled workers to have jobs, because that is the actual effect that her law is going to have. But, you know, they don't even want to admit that. This is the problem now with the left, because the minute the left has to acknowledge that the minimum wage would create unemployment among the mentally disabled, right? The minute they admit that, then they've opened up that can of worms. Because, wait a minute, if the minimum wage causes some people with disabilities to lose their jobs, maybe an even higher minimum wage would cause people who don't have disabilities to lose jobs because they still don't have skills. Right? As I mentioned earlier, if half the country is earning less than $15 an hour right now, that's because they don't have the skills to be able to earn more than $15 an hour. They don't have enough productivity. They can't deliver enough productivity to their employer to be compensated more than $15 an hour. But if you jack the minimum wage up to $15 an hour, you have a lot of people that maybe they can offer $8 an hour, $9 an hour, $10 an hour of productivity. But then if you force the employer to say, well, you got to pay 15, well, no one wants to pay $15 to buy $10. Nobody is in business to lose money. Right? That's what these politicians don't understand. If they'd ever run a business, they might understand that. They might recognize that businesses have to generate a profit. And the reason that businesses have to generate a profit is because their customers want low prices. right? And they shop around for the best deal. And so in order to deliver low prices, you have to economize your resources. You have to try to keep costs down and keep quality up.
right? And so you can't overpay people for their productivity because then you'll have to price your products at such a point that nobody's going to want to buy them. And then you go out of business and then everybody loses their job.